This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with Kate Bourne, who is a counsellor at the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority, or VARTA. Kate and VARTA provide counselling services to donors, recipients and donor-conceived people, and they also have programs for donor linking and a Time to Tell seminar, which helps people decide when and how to tell their children that they are donor-conceived or surrogacy-conceived. This uh, episode should be really a great resource for anyone that's considering using a donor or being a donor. And particularly, I really enjoyed the perspectives of donor-conceived people who are now in their 20s and 30s and are able to reflect on their donor conception and how things were done 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, I'll have lots of links in the post for VARTA and their Time to Tell seminar and also their legacy project, which I found really fascinating. My name is Kate Bourne. Uh, I'm a, the manager of the donor register services at VARTA. I guess my background is I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker for 35 years. I started off working at the children's with um, very sick children and I guess that taught me a lot about grief and, and you know the importance of, of having a child. Since early 90s, I've been working as an IVF uh, counsellor and for the last 10 years, I've been working at uh, VARTA, which was the Infertility Treatment Authority. So VARTA is an organisation that uh, manages the donor registers. So for people who want to uh, connect with their donor or parents who want to do that, we also provide a lot of um, public education. So we have uh, a website with a lot of information for people who are going to need um, ART or for people who have and to help them uh, talk to their children, for instance. We also run seminars. So we have Twilight seminars and we have a Time to Tell seminar every year to help parents talk to the kids about how they became a family. So I guess that's a rundown of who I am and, and Varta. Thank you. Can you tell me a bit about the Time to Tell seminar and why Varta decided to run them? Yeah, so it's an annual seminar. It goes for uh, the day and it's really, uh, we are very conscious that parents uh, are often very keen to talk to their kids about how they became a family with the help of a donor or surrogate but perhaps lack a little bit of confidence and are not sure when um, or how to tell. And then there are also some parents that aren't sure that they want to tell and need a bit of help with the why tell. So it's an amazing day. Uh, we have, uh, I, I speak about um, actually how to tell. We also talk about why tell. We also have a lot of talks from real people. So we have talks from donor conceived people who found out as adults. And I guess from um, listening to them, it's the best way to learn of, of why uh, it's so important to tell early. And then we have uh, families of all different family constellations with their kids. Um, and their kids are usually um, teenagers or adults and talking about um, how they told and then in the afternoons we have breakout groups for all the different family constellations and they're led by experienced uh, parents and a counsellor 
and so it gives people a chance to really talk through their particular uh, family issues and the seminars are for people who are thinking about uh, having a family through to um, people, um, women who are pregnant and their partners if they have a partner. We have a lot of solo mothers and um, for people with uh, usually young children come. So it's a fantastic day. Can you talk a bit about what we've learned from donor-conceived adults and what we perhaps did in the years before we realised that there were there were different ways of doing donor yeah, conception? Yeah. So I run a group for donor-conceived adults. Uh, that's another thing that VARTA does. And through our work with the registers, uh, I've um, come in, you know, I've worked with many, many donor-conceived adults. And I guess they really uh, have informed my practice and they've taught me so much. So um, I think what we've really learnt is to, um, for, for, you know, the importance of telling early and, um, and that, it, that it is an ongoing conversation. Uh, I think there was a little bit of a myth that if you tell early and love's enough that there'll be... Um, I think some parents thought there may not be a curiosity about the donor, uh, but I certainly know a lot of um, people who have, to, you know, have not always known. But certainly, it's uh, extremely uh, important for them to know more about their donor, and I feel that that's um, entirely to be expected and is normal and healthy, and that the the young people that I see who do best are those that are really supported in that, so that they're. They're not forced to sort of choose and they um, that their parents um, don't feel threatened by that and, you know, are really with them on that um, and, you know, really encourage them to do so. It's really difficult for people if they feel that their parents um, can't talk about anything to do with this. It really means that they... Uh, I guess turn away from them, um, which is sad. What are your yeah. reflections from donor-conceived adults who know that they're donor-conceived, but for whatever reason have not been able to trace their donor or their potential half siblings? What's yeah. their experience? Yeah, so it's really, really difficult for people who, um, for instance, I guess what we've learnt from early practice. Getting back to your early question, is that you know previously donors were anonymous, and now that's not possible. All donors in Australia have to be identity release. In the olden days, records weren't necessarily kept well and that's been a real problem for people. Um, in some states, um, there are people where, you know, there's no legislation to help them find out more. Uh, the clinic doesn't necessarily help them. Fortunately, in Victoria, we have very progressive legislation. But for those where there aren't records, I guess what's really changed is that DNA means that no one is anonymous anymore and so um, there are some incredible uh, donor-conceived people who I guess would call themselves DNA detectives and they have an amazing strike rate at finding people and so for those people where I guess VARTA can't help them or they're in a state where legislation can't help them they are actually turning to DNA and some of those DNA detectives would say they are now able to find anybody. But what it means, though, is it's that they often need to contact extended family of the donor. And so that is um, 
potentially, I guess, does breach the donor's privacy. Um, but, you know, that donor-conceived person has absolutely no alternative, so I really understand that. And it's also really difficult for that person because rather than VATA assisting them to, to outreach the donor and having an intermediary that both supports them and the donor, so if the donor doesn't welcome the contact, you know, that, that's really, really um, challenging for them, um, particularly if they're young, to make that outreach knowing that they may or may not be welcomed. And the donor also may not trust that they are the, the, the genuine offspring and may feel that they're being, what's the term, is it catfished or? Catfished. Definitely. Catfished. Uh, and that this person might be not really their offspring. So it can be really tricky for the donor as well. I'm fascinated by this idea of, of DNA detectives. Yeah. So what are their methods? Is it all DNA yeah. testing through Ancestry.com? Yeah, well, you might actually like to do a podcast. It's a combination of all the information that a person might have. And so that could be that they have the donor profile. Uh, they uh, often need to go through a number of the DNA um, uh, consumer um uh, testing um, organisation. So uh, you may have heard of Ancestry.com, Family Tree and Me. Um, there are all sorts of different ones, so they might need to have testing with all of those. Um, then they can upload that information. And then it's uh, sort of looking at all these, any matches, and sometimes it can take months and months and months. You know, this is, or sometimes there can be an instant match to quite a close relative. So the other implication that's happening is that uh, a lot of donor-conceived people are using these and they may be matching with uh, actual donor siblings. Uh, and But the donor sibling may not be aware that they're donor-conceived. Wow. And so that has been really huge for them and they've just been amazing. But they have to sort of sensitively find out you know and how do you, you can't say so do you know you don't are conceived mm. so they have to um, sort of navigate this really difficult conversation over kind of messaging to work out do they know don't they know and often they don't know and then they often sensitively suggest perhaps you should talk to your parents about this and so it's it's really really um, it's the last few years, DNA testing has just changed everything. Mm. Everything. And I think the lesson yeah. for anyone considering not telling their children that they're donor conceived is that DNA testing really says it's not it's anonymous. impossible. It's yeah. it, it's actually in the early days when I counselled families, we often did the whole white tell, and um, really from the early nineties, I can absolutely say that the counsellors were encouraging families to tell. Um, but because we were, um, sometimes the doctors were not encouraging that and sometimes, you know, particularly for the, if it was a male factor issue, which it, it usually was back then, um, that the men often feared that the, the children would um, reject them and they were uh, very concerned about stigma and... Um, it was so tied up with them um, just feeling not at peace with their diagnosis. So it was, um, we know we encouraged a lot of families, but a lot of families didn't tell. 
and mm. and the I'm now meeting um, some of those families um, where the, the families didn't tell, but I'm also meeting some families that did tell. Um, and what, what's that yeah. like if, if somebody was not told yeah. and then they find out as an adult, perhaps by accident or a message from a donor, a it's, DNA detective? It's huge. So it's absolutely huge. And um, I've met so many people that have found out and it is um, just... And that, that feeling about that trust with their parents, um, that if you felt close to your parents, why they didn't tell you. And people can find out so uh, through DNA and sometimes, it, you know, I've had um, people who found out because a member of the family has Alzheimer's. It's come out when the parents are splitting up. It's just come out in all sorts of... Or other relatives... Uh, um, it's been through um, parents have repartnered and a new partner may have told or there's just been all sorts of ways and it's usually just those building blocks of who you thought you were it's like a, a vital part of that has been removed and they have to rebuild it and it's it's just like a hand grenade in the family and some of the parents haven't been particularly supportive and have been kind of upset that the secrets come out and rather than focusing on their son or daughter they're actually focusing on themselves because it's it's I guess triggering all those feelings about infertility mm-hmm. and the secret and the stigma and the shame and the guilt perhaps of not telling them earlier and so it's look in in really healthy families I think they get over that crisis. But often families aren't necessarily healthy. And so any family that has cracks, this often makes those cracks even bigger. And so it is, you know, a huge thing for people. And, and uh, you know, we, we try and support those people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very, very difficult for them. The other thing to mention is that donors can apply to the register. And so um, if... And, and so they can apply uh, if the children are younger than 18 then we outreach to the parents but if the children are adults uh, then by law we need to outreach to that person and we found 90% of them don't know they're donor conceived and so we do um, ask them to you know so they contact us and we say so do you have any idea why I might be contacting you and if they say no absolutely no idea um, so we try and get their details and say, look, I think you perhaps need to talk to your parents about this and then talk to me when you've done that. Um, that must be, I mean, that's life-changing really, that Huge, call. huge, yes, yeah. absolutely yes. huge. So it's the hardest thing that we have to do. Um, and look, people, people do get through finding out they're donor-conceived, but it's just so much easier. Because I, I now know lots who've, found out as a young child and the comfort level you know they just feel that that's kind of normal totally normal and this is the way our family is I mean there's still um, issues for them naturally about how many donor siblings they have and whether they'll be able to have contact with them if they want to do that and how many there might be and those sorts of things and um, there's certainly issues in terms of will the donor be receptive 
And for the, some of the adults that I'm seeing, the donor might have been anonymous. And certainly in the families that we see now, it's very different because many families are actually outreaching to the donor while the, the children are young. Or for instance, with egg donation, they're actually known from the get-go. So it's, it's, I think, wonderful for those children to have contact with that donor from the very beginning, you know, or from a young age. Yeah. Would that be the, the sort of best practice, I guess, in terms of if somebody's going to be a donor or as a donor? Yeah. What would your advice be about how do you make this work for the child's interests? Yeah. So I think um, it's thinking about what's best for the child. And so some families choose a known donor. Um, and if you're choosing a known donor, then it's just really, really important to have lots of con- conversations before the donor goes donation goes ahead and really thinking through how is this going to work, what, how is the donor going to be referred to, what role will that donor have in our family's life, how much contact will we have, who's going to know, all those sorts of things. Um, we do have... Um, uh, brochures about finding an egg donor and and it goes through all the sorts of things to to talk to about with your egg donor which you know is really helpful to have done all of that before you actually go and talk to the to the counselor at the clinic um, because they're the sorts of things that naturally the counselor is going to want to talk to you about and check to see that you are on the same page um, if it's a clinic donor and I think that's also a very valid decision although of course clinics often don't have access to um, many egg donors so uh, currently you do need to find your own egg donor or use a donor from um, say the World Egg Bank so uh, with a clinic uh, donor it you may well choose to apply to the donor registers while your child's younger and I think um, that can be really positive, but I think it, we don't actually have research. Uh, I guess what we're doing is follow the research from um, adoption theory, and I guess with adoption theory, it is about open adoption. It is about children growing up knowing. It is about um, potential contact with with the first family or the birth family, if we call them that, um, right from the get go. So I guess. Ideally, probably following that, um, but that's not always possible. And I guess with sperm donors too, there's the issue of that there can be a large number of families and a large number of children, so the donor needs to be aware of um, pacing themselves so that they, um, I guess, don't spend so much time with the first outreach and the first family that there's nothing left in the tank for the other people or families that come forward Mm -hmm. and so I guess to any egg donor that's um, donating to multiple families also needs to be thoughtful about how can I how much time and uh, availability do I have and in and aligning you know what does the what do the intended families want and trying to be on the same page with that and ideally finding a donor um, or a surrogate that fits in with that. But of course it's really hard to know what a child's going to want. And mm. yeah, so I think it's important that it's child-led and it's so important for the child to grow up knowing what's the difference between a donor and, you know, the parents 
you know, so what's the difference between my donor and, and my mum and dad or my dad and dad or, you know, whatever the family constellation is, my mum and my mum, so do you see any, there's a single mum. Do you see any themes with donor-conceived people in terms of what they want from their donor? Well, yes, well, I think it varies a lot. So we can't presume to know what someone wants. And so I see uh, quite a spectrum of from um, some people, you know, so I see, I sometimes see adults and they'll be, they'll be as keen as, you know, keen as keen to have contact with a donor and perhaps a friendship. And then their sibling, even though that person may well have achieved a friendship with the donor, their sibling doesn't want it at all. Uh, not ready, may never want it. So it goes from not wanting anything to some donor-conceived people who would just love a friendship to those that just want medical information or it depends whether they like the donor. And I guess I'm talking a lot about uh, because of historically the adults tend to be of sperm donors I'm sort of talking in the main of contact with their sperm donors, but we're just starting to see um, donor-conceived people who are conceived from egg donors wanting to connect with egg donors and that those egg donors historically were initially clinic-recruited egg donors who were, I guess, anonymous at that time. And I guess I, from knowing egg donors, I would, would expect them to have a higher rate of being open to contact with the sperm donors, um, I think more sperm donors are willing to have contact than not, but some are not willing to have any information, um, share any personal information. But the donor, all donor-conceived people now have the right to know at least the donor's name and date of birth and donor code. So I'm aware that some people can't or, or don't find a donor within Australia and they look at overseas options. Um, can you tell me about what's VARTA's role in supporting people who are going overseas for a donor? Yeah, so we do have some information. Um, we've got a legal checklist for people considering international surrogacy or, or donation, uh, but particularly surrogacy more than uh, uh, donation. But I guess the things that I would be encouraging people to look for is that given what we know now, that... Um, Please go uh, to uh, somewhere where you can have an ongoing connection with your egg donor and your surrogate. I've just, you know, it's very easy because I can really understand um, people's desire to have a child and it is like, you know, I call it like a baby lust. And it's, it's hard when you are so consumed for wanting to have a child to be driven by what's quickest and what's easiest and what will make it happen fastest. And look, I get that, but please, please, please think about the person that you are creating and please don't have a one-night stand. You know, please do this really thoughtfully because I've seen the fallout from how donation was done a generation ago. And look, people were doing it with the best of intentions, but unfortunately the practice hasn't changed in a lot of places overseas. 
and they're not listening to donor-conceived people. And a lot of people who are contemplating having children now haven't really been aware of the impact for donor-conceived people and, and for people you know, who've been gestated by a surrogate. But those people are clearly saying that they want, you know, they often want to know where they've come from and they want their parents to have a nice connection with that person. So um, we now know people who've been gestated by a surrogate who are now, you know, young people. And the ones where the parents have an ongoing connection, it doesn't, you know, I'm not talking about being besties or anything like that, but those where the uh, young people feel that they can talk to the surrogate, talk to the egg donor comfortably without their parents feeling threatened. So their questions are answered. Um, they don't have to go on a big quest. Um, I'm really concerned that there's going to be another generation of uh, people saying, why do I have to fight so hard to find out where I've come from? Why? You know, why haven't you learned from the people? You know, it's not like the, that information isn't out there now. Mm -hmm. So I guess, um, you know, I, I do really understand the difficulties of finding a surrogate and finding uh, an egg donor. But I really hope people aren't trying to cut corners um, just to get that baby. And I, I, I can get that because often people then go, oh, but we'll work it out later. At least I'll be a parent. But... You know, I also have had contact with parents who, whether it's when their parent or when their surrogate's uh, their surrogate is pregnant or when the you know they bring the child back or whatever, the the lights start to come on, and they go oh, oh, um, oh, and they you know may feel guilty about that, and it can be too late then, and you know. Uh, Look, with DNA testing, I'm very hopeful that those young people will be able to find out um, where they've come from. But I guess the litmus test is when I talk to my children, can I hold my head up high and say, this is a lovely story to tell them? Is there any part of my story that is awkward to tell? And I think that's, if there is, then maybe you should be looking elsewhere, you know. Um, I think that's yeah. perfect advice. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, there is um, that sort of want, the baby lust, as yeah. you say, and people really need to understand the consequences. And that if the adults of donor conception are now speaking up, we, yeah. we have to be listening. Yeah. 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 But unfortunately, you know, it's so strong. Mm. Um you know, you can imagine if you're, you know, you're starving and there's a piece of chocolate cake, you say to hell with the, you know, calories, I'm just going to eat it. But it, then it's after you eat the calories that you go, hmm, wasn't necessarily a sensible decision, you know, so, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about the legacy um, items and program that you're running at Barter? Yeah. So we've um, just launched a donor legacy um uh, resources. Uh, so there is a voluntary register that people can uh, lodge information on for um, and 
anyone can go on that. It can be donor-conceived people, it can be parents, and it can also be donors. And I guess uh, we particularly urge donors um, to lodge material. And we had a project that was uh, led by a wonderful young woman, Chloe Allworthy, and she's donor-conceived and she was doing her social work placement here at Varta. And so she's put together all these resources to help donors um, know what might be useful for and what their donor offspring would be really curious to know. And um, she's got a resource about the sort of 10 most important things they want to know and it also goes to the 50 most important things and she's uh, the way she came at those um, was by um, asking donor conceived people what they were most curious about. Uh, there's also um, uh, an example of a legacy video that people might want to do and we also have a wonderful uh, donor who has got great experience in filming and he uh, has volunteered to assist particularly older donors that may lack the expertise in filming and so um, you know that's fantastic to have him uh, assist us. Yeah so it's it's just so important because uh, donors could be hit by a bus and it's just would be fantastic to leave material behind. Also because we know that some donor-conceived people may not find out that they're donor-conceived until, you know, they're quite old. You know, they might be 50s, 60s. Looking at uh, adoption experience, people may find out, you know, very late in life. And so to have this, you know, their donor's likely to have died before they... And so the possibility of direct contact is, is not there for them. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, what I'd encourage that... all donors to do that. I'll, I'll link the, um, the resources on the website. Yeah. I'm interested in some of the top ten things that donor-conceived people might want to know about their donor. So they're very curious about uh, medical history. They want to know what the donor looks like. So photos. They're interested in um, family tree information. So... Um, um, so commonly the um, information that they put on um, their donor profile, so occupation, hobbies, but, you know, all the quirky things they love as well. Yeah, anything. If you were interested in more information, you can go to the VARTA website. Even if you're not in Victoria, the resources are available to everyone and I found them really valuable. If you're looking to contact me, you can find me on my website, sarahjefford.com or on Instagram and on Facebook.